0: Nights on ABC Radio. Let's step back to 1917. The Australian Light Horse Division secured the town of Besheva. It brought a close to a crucial battle during World War I. To tell you more about it, Peter Fitzsimmons joins you, author of The Last Charge of the Australian Light Horse. Hello.
1: Lisa Pellegrino, how nice to hear your vibrant voice right in the middle of these wee-wee hours.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, wee-wee hours, you are correct. But uh, such interesting conversations we've been having today, a real focus on history uh, today, and this one a little closer to home with a great Australian involvement. Take us back to 1917. What happened?
1: It's an extraordinary arm that basically the Australian light horse had done so well during the Boer War that when the Imperial War broke out, the the Imperial government in Britain first request to Australia was send us men, send us horses, send the Australian light horse. And so there were 2,000 horsemen with horses who headed off in the first contingent They landed in Egypt, they trained within the shadow of the pyramids, and then when Gallipoli broke out, sadly, there was such slaughter at Gallipoli that they needed the, the soldiers of the light horse, the troopers, to come to Gallipoli without their horses. Tragically, in the infamous Battle of the Neck on the 7th of August 1915, that was the 8th and the 10th Australian light horse, Four waves of 150 each running straight onto the Turkish guns, as was made infamous by Peter Weir's film Gallipoli, 40 years ago. They were slaughtered, but the survivors with the rest of the light horse got back to got back to Egypt, were reunited with their horses, and for the rest of the war essentially pushed forward through biblical lands, taking taking what had been in the in the territory of the Ottoman Empire for 400 years, and with the Brits, kept pushing forward first to Gaza and then all the way onwards to Damascus.
0: Mm. Now, but Shiva, where, where is that if we're looking and what's the, what's the geography well, like, just so we have a picture?
1: Yeah, it's now in southern Israel, and I went there in April of this year. And if you can picture it, as they pushed north, the Ottoman Empire, backed by the Germans, with both troops and machinery and officers. They built a fortified line in the desert, essentially from Gaza, which we now tragically know for what's happening there now. And out to the east was Beersheba, thirty-two miles to the east, fifty kilometres in the old in the new money. And so it's a heavily fortified line. With, with, with weaponry, with soldiers, all built on natural defences, so that as the Allied forces pushed to the north, the, they first attacked the heavily fortified ancient town of Gaza, and they attacked once, they attacked twice, and they were beaten back the second time. They were beaten back by, even though the Brits were using tanks for the first time in the Middle East battle. So what set up Beersheba was, the idea for the third attack was, instead of attacking Gaza, why don't we go right out to the far end, right out into the middle of the desert, where they think, and the Turks thought, they can't possibly attack us at Beersheba because it's in the middle of the desert. In in those kind of climes, Men on horses, forget it, you need so much water, they won't be able to find water out there. So, so they, they, it wasn't, Beersheba wasn't as heavily defended as it might be. The Brits used famously what's called the haversack ruse, which was an intelligence officer, loads his knapsack with, with false orders and letters from his wife and letters to his wife and baby photos and rides out, Towards the Turkish defences until they see him, they fire at him, he rides away, they chase, he drops the haversack, and in the haversack are the orders which said, We're about you must attack Gaza. And the idea was to make the Turks and Germans heavily defend Gaza, whereas in fact, what they intended to do was to attack out to the east of Beersheba. And how did they get the water? It's fascinating. They basically consulted the Bible because they realised that any mention of ancient towns in the Bible, even if they're not quite on the map now, if there were villages there in the past, there must be wells. And so using a map from 1886, cross-referenced with the Bible, they work out where these tiny villages used to be, and then they send engineers out, they resuscitate the wells, and under cover of darkness, in the last week of October, 1917, they moved their forces into position to surround Beersheba, or at least from the southwest and the east. And so on the morning of the 17th of October, uh, uh, 31st of October, 1917, the Brits opened their artillery fire on the southwest of 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 Beersheba. They send their troops in, and as the day proceeds, they managed to quell the defences on the southwest. The New Zealanders and the Australians attack from the east and at four thirty in the afternoon, just as the sun's gone, gone down, still their Sheba is held. There is one last chance, and that is for the eight hundred horsemen, the troopers of the Twelfth and the Fourth Australian Light Regiment, or Light Horse Regiment, to do which the seemingly inconceivable thing, the thing that had barely been done in this war, which was to have men on horse charge straight at guns. Straight at the guns. And on Anzac Day this year I stood where the Turks had stood with their guns and their their accounts of seeing billowing clouds of dust coming at them from the east as the order goes to the Australians charge and the the accounts of the Turks are as the sun's going down behind them, they see these billowing clouds of dust. And at the very lead, right from the top of those dust, they see something glint glinting in the in the dying sun. What is it? It's the Australians holding their bayonets up as they charge. And the extraordinary bravery of the Turks to to stick to really literally stick to their guns, but in the end, the 800 horsemen charge, they overwhelm the Turks, they take their Sheba in the most thrilling charge of the war. They have access then to the wells of Beersheba, which gives them, gives them an even more certain war, water supply. And when Beersheba fell, the Allies were able to get behind that fortified line. Gaza then fell seven days later and they keep pushing north through the biblical lands and over the next year until they get to Damascus. And Damascus had been, again, as I say, held by the Ottoman Empire for 400 years, and it was the Australians who, who took the surrender. And if I may say, Lisa, that's my favourite story of all. Can I tell my best story from that? Tell us. <laughs> Thank you, you're sounding absorbed
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm gripped, tell me
1: okay. Well before, uh, before I get to that I'll just say quickly One of those that died at Beersheba Was Tibby Cotter Tibby Cotter was the Dennis Lily of his day And he'd was a. He'd finished his career He was the one more or less Invented the bouncer He was the one that at one point When well, he smashed Victor Trumper's stumps The great Victor Trumper's stumps at the SCG Victor Trumper held up the two pieces of of stump to show the crowd how fast Tibby Cotter was. And when Tibby Cotter got to Gallipoli, he was famous for the troops because the rest of them could throw the grenades 30 yards, he could throw them 60 yards, and he was the hero of the troops. And before that battle of Beersheba, he swapped He said to his mate, I want to be in on the charge. So his mate took the stretcher, he took the horse, and tragically died at Beersheba. And I was able to lay... lay a a flower on his grave, as I say, on Anzac Day this year. But the story I love most from this whole account of the Light Horse, because I think it's a quintessentially Australian story, there was this bloke who was a a dentist from Ballarat. His name was Arthur Olden. And leading into the war, he decided, I want to join the glorious Light Horse. So he goes to his local Light Horse regiment, says, I want to join. They say no, sorry, there's no positions as officers available, but you can be a trooper. He says, call me Trooper Arthur Alden. So they, they say, all right, welcome. And over there in the corner, you'll see a huge pile of potatoes. Your job is to peel them. So for 10 days, he peels the potatoes. In the end, they say, all right, you, you, you know, well, you've got the makings of an officer. Um, you're showing leadership. So he trains to be an officer. By the end of the war, and this is one of the stories, The, the I love, great characters in history and one of the great characters in this story is Lawrence of Arabia who's captured people's imagination for a hundred years. He was a British army officer who spoke Arabic and his central idea was I'll unite the warring Arab tribes and we'll go against the Turks and by the time Damascus is about to fall it suited Britain if, uh, if, if Lawrence of Arabia could lead his Arab Arab fighters, and take Damascus. So they were told, that so Arthur Alden and the 10th Light Horse Regiment, because by this time, Arthur Alden is now commanding the 10th Light Horse, they say, you skirt Damascus to the west, Arthur Alden, and make sure that when Lawrence of Arabia attacks from the south, any of the Turks trying to get away to the north on the Aleppo Road, you round them up. So on the morning of the, uh, the I think it was 19th of December, uh, 1918, it was getting close to the end. Arthur Alden is leading the 10th light horse to the west and they can't get through so the only way to get through to Damascus is to go through the center. So as they're approaching the center suddenly shots ring out and what is it it's not a, it's not a fight it is it is the people of Damascus celebrating their liberation and they find themselves in front of what is effectively Damascus's town hall Arthur Alden goes up he's 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 ushered into the presence of of the of the of the emir who surrenders to him, and he's got this document which says we send a surrender, you know, to British Army officer Arthur Alden, Colonel Arthur Alden. And he says, "Hang on, I'm Australian, so so do that again." <laughs> and they they sign the surrender document. And he goes down and he stands in front of the cheering troops of the Australian 10th Light Horse. And he's an ancient history buff. He holds the surrender document in his hands and he calls out to his troops, "I stand here in a direct line from Ramses the Second, Alexander the Great, and Napoleon Bonaparte," and they all cheer. <laughs> And what I love about that story is only only in Australia could you have a potato peeler who, four years later is the one that takes the takes the surrender of Damascus from the Ottoman Empire after four hundred years and So I love stories like that, and a, a lot of people that have read the book also love the stories of the Pacific horses because i 'm sure you know we sent Australia sent one hundred and twenty thousand whaler horses that were the that were that were very sturdy breed we sent them to this war and only one came back and the at the end of the whole saga the the Australian troopers were devastated to be told your 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 horses can't come back there's no room we're not taking them back and some of them Some of them then found found service in the Middle East, but many of the troopers shot their own horses rather than have them work to death.
0: Mm, Well, speaking of the horses, on the text, Tony in uh, Bowen Hills said the horses were the real heroes in that battle. Uh, Also, Bill uh, in Flemington, hello. Oh, yes, good morning.
1: Yes, uh, Peter and Lisa, there was a a horse race before the actual charge, the Jericho Cup, and it's going to be reenacted. In a couple of weeks in in Warrnambool, they had the Jericho Cup. So that put the Turks off. They didn't think they would attack that day because they had this horse race on. And also, have you heard um, Eric Bogle's song, Lisa, about the horses? It's called As If He Knows. It's about when they had to shoot the horses before they came home. It's a beautiful song.
0: What's it
1: called? As If if He Knows? As as, as If He Knows. It's the most Mm. beautiful song. Very sad. But it's, it's written about when they had to shoot their horses before they came home. Yeah. Yeah. Everything Eric Bogle sings is I find beautiful. But you know, if I can tell one quick story of one of the horses. He was known as Bill the Bastard. And he was he was a huge horse that was so unruly. He very nearly didn't they they very nearly dropped him off in the middle of the ocean because he was tearing the stalls apart. In the end, the only service that they could get for Bill the Bastard was at Gallipoli. He was gentle, carrying down the wounded and the dead. And there was one officer, Michael Shanahan, uh, Captain Michael Shanahan, who fed Bill the Bastard licorice because he found out that Bill the Bastard loved liquor, so he'd calm down. In the end, when they got back to the middle, it got back to Cairo, he was able to basically tame and train Bill the Bastard. And in the, in the, in the, there was a one extraordinary battle leading up to the charge at Beersheba, which was the Battle of Romani. And you had 10,000 Turks attacking attacking the Australians. And in the middle, and in right in the middle... Of, of this battle and, the, and the, the bullets are whining the shells are landing there's dust and there's this catastrophe all around four Australians got isolated on the, the Turkey side of the lines and, and they're completely done for and by their account through the smoke through the thunder through the shattering roar comes Shanahan on Bill the Bastard and he roars to the four of them quick, get up one on each stirrup, two behind him, and the five of them on Bill the Bastard charge back and save the day. And Bill the Bastard, they reckon, was the only horse uh, that was strong enough to carry five men. And the other one that I focused on, the other particular horse, is a horse, a champion New South Wales horse, horse from New South Wales, known as Midnight from Upper Scone. And his master was Guy Hayden. And Guy Hayden rose through the through the ranks of the Light Horse and on the charge of Beersheba, and I've stayed at. I went up to stay at this property, and now in the in the hands of the Hayden family. Not surprisingly, and and they have all the memorabilia. And as they charge, all of the horsemen, all of the Australian horsemen, get right down behind, right down behind the horses. For their own protection. And a lot of these horses were some of the finest horses from studs all over Australia. Because when you sent your son to the war, the best chance he had of coming back was if you gave the finest horses they had. And as Hayden and Midnight, as Midnight leaped over the Turkish trenches, one of the Turks fired straight up. The bullet went right through Midnight. Right up in through the buttocks of Guy Hayden, lodged near his spine. He came down. Midnight was mortally wounded, but as the Hayden family folklore has it, and as the diary entries had it, Midnight stood over him for the rest of the battle, protecting him from 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 whatever shells and shrapnel and bullets would come. Before Midnight finally died, Hayden was found found the next day, evacuated to Cairo and got back to Australia to live effectively ever after, even if limping through life.
0: Peter, what do you think has been the impact of the people and that area of Bathsheba after what happened? I mean, obviously, it's a very good story for what uh, for, for Australians and those who were involved. But what do you think the impact of what was achieved there or what happened there? The,
1: the, well, look, the, it's... it's the impact at the time, I mean, it's all geopolitical, but basically it was the, it was effectively the ending, it was part of the ending of the Ottoman Empire that you had, they had held it for 400 years. And they were a very, you know, they were, they were like the Roman Empire, the British Empire, the Ottoman Empire was phenomenally strong. And there's always a tendency in... I suppose most countries, you know, talking about our soldiers, there's a tendency to be vainglorious about it and say, well, our soldiers were red hot. The truth of it is, you know, I've done, I don't know how many books I've done now I've, I've, on wartime stuff. Both of my parents served in the Second World War and my grandfather was in the Boer War, so I guess I've got an innate pride in it. When you go into it, I mean, the, 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 the even vaingloriousness aside, the performance of the Australians in in the in the in those wartime exploits were absolutely extraordinary. I mean, it was the Australians that were right at the prow of the spear, going into the Ottoman Empire in in the Middle East at the same time as Monash, Sir John, the greatest general we've ever had. One of the one think one of the greatest Australians that ever lived, Sir John Monash was leading his troops after the Battle of Hamel on the 4th of July 1918, which cracked the German line wide open. They really were. I mean, you look at what they achieved. It was extraordinary. And in the Middle East, which I've written about for this Beersheba book, the Australians were so highly regarded, as were their horses, because the Brits, you know, the Brits were brave men and their horses were fine horses, but their horses were, came from a green and pleasant land. And they were, they were very strong on things like equestrian events. And they, they, they weren't designed, they weren't bred the Desert conditions. So many of the Australians came from the outback. They were used to living off the land. And Banjo Patterson, as we know, was the most famous poem of all. You know, movement of the station for the word to pass around that the Gulf of old regret had gone away. That, that. That Banjo-Patterson, Banjo-Patterson was there, by the way, as a major in charge of the remount depot providing those horses. But Banjo-Patterson immortalised the pioneer spirit of Australia in those late 1800s and immortalised the ability of those horsemen. And what, what, what Beersheba was about, it was an extraordinary... Amalgam of that pioneering spirit of Australia meets the modern world of machine guns that could fire 600 bullets a minute of of artillery. One of the one of the artillery in that First World War, the Paris gun, could fire a shell 80 miles. And here, the Australians of the Light Horse, it was the last gasp where you could have men on horseback making an impact and what an extraordinary impact they had. And they were very highly regarded by, by, you know, the, the British generals wanted, they wanted, we want the Australian light horse because they're so extraordinary.
0: On ABC Radio, thank you so much, Peter, for taking some time out and talking today.
1: Thank you, Lisa. I really appreciate being on your wonderful show. Bye.
0: Peter Fitzsimmons, author, The Last Charge of the Australian Light Horse.